It's from John 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He said to him the third time, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Please stay in John chapter 21, and let's do some jumping jacks. No, I'm kidding. I, I don't want you to stand up. You might hurt yourself. So thank you for um, being here and being willing to worship the Lord again. It's been a good day, and uh, we hope not only our stomachs are full, but our hearts and spirits are full, more importantly. Um, so if you nod off, I'll just raise my voice and throw a songbook or something like that. I'll do my best to kind of keep us engaged. But what a blessing it is to be able to sing songs of praise and worship together and to pray together and to study from his word. Don't know of a greater blessing than that this side of eternity. So thank you for uh, being with us. So as we look at John chapter 21, at least some larger section of John is very familiar to us. But why do we have John chapter 21? Have you ever wondered that? When you look at the Gospel of John, it is very well structured and tightly structured. From John 1.1 all the way to John 20 and verse 31. In fact, when you read John 20 and verses 30 and 31, not only do you see there an explicit statement of the theme of uh, the writer of this gospel account. But it almost feels like a conclusion there. You know, you begin in John 1.1 referencing the eternal nature of Christ's uh, divinity and deity and who He is as God's Son. And He speaks of Him being light and life and all of those. We have these wonderful uh, I am statements all the way through John. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Uh, he He's described uh, as the, the true vine, and we as his disciples are branches. And the Father uh, is the, the caretaker, if you will, of all of that. Jesus says, uh, I believe in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, all of those statements are very compelling and beautiful and powerful statements. And so when you start out that way in the beginning, he was there with God. He is God. The word was God and no doubt about his divine nature there. And then we read the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we see His grace and His truth and He explained the Father. He revealed the Father. And you have all of these wonderful statements. He's the Good Shepherd. He's our sacrifice. All of this. 
and you come to John chapter 20. And what a wonderful text that is. When you look at John the 20th chapter, we read about this empty tomb. We read about Jesus' uh, resurrection. And then we have Thomas. And I sometimes think Thomas gets a little bit of a, a bad rap. Really, what, what he's asking for, even the way he's asking for it, is not that different from what the other disciples had asked for and what their struggle had been, this idea of believing Jesus was really raised from the dead. If you read Luke chapters or chapter 24 or so, you could really see that. But he wasn't there when they met. Perhaps he gets, uh, gets some criticism for not, not being there with them before. But for whatever the case, he says, listen, I'm not going to believe just because somebody told me to believe. This is what I need to see. And I guess the, the inquisitive kind of skeptical part of us may benefit from that. And faith does have its reasons and it has a real foundation and it's not just a blind lead. And so here we are with Thomas. And if we were going to put a, you know, a descriptor there in front of Thomas, the one we most often choose is what? Believing Thomas, right? You've heard that sermon before. Now usually it's doubting Thomas. And he did have to deal with his doubts but as we talked about this morning, this was his way to greater faith. So he asked some questions. Notice there in John chapter 20 that, that the thing he was asking for was confirmation in many ways. And so in John the 20th chapter, you'll notice in verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to him, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Well, Jesus knows Thomas as well as anybody could possibly know Thomas. And so he says to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Well, Thomas wasn't looking for a reason not to believe. He was being transparent about the situation. But once Jesus does this, here's what we read. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. What a confession that he makes. My Lord and my God. God. Well, Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You know, we haven't, I have never, you know, I wasn't there physically witnessing, observing Jesus. But you know what we do have? We have the testimony, the record of eyewitnesses. And you know, eyewitness testimony is very strong. In 1 Corinthians 15, we have it mentioned that over 500 witnesses, you know, I suppose in a court of law, if it's worth anything at all, if you had 500 witnesses that said, we saw this happen, that ought to carry some weight. And not only that, it's not that as we often say, they're just drinking the Kool-Aid here because we have Paul, 
Saul of Tarsus, one born out of due season, completely changed what he was thinking, persecuting the church, holding the clothing of those who stoned Stephen. And he entirely changes his mind, gives his life to serve the Lord, gives up on his the, the advantages of his past religious education and and in many ways staying in the traditions of his family heritage. It was his faith in Old Testament Scripture that led him to become a Christian. He came to understand that if you're faithful to Old Testament Scripture, you will be a Christian. But when you, if we were to do an analysis, if we were to do an analysis, a psychological profile, and you took the Apostle Paul, he's not exactly the highly emotional type, is he? And yet he completely changed his mind. Men who had been somewhat cowardly and fearful became very courageous. And some people will come along and they'll say, well, you know, there are other people that have believed things that we don't think are true. Yes. But remember this. This is, a, this is very unique. These men, ladies and gentlemen, knew if it was true. And these men were willing to die. If you're saying to me that all of these men, all these different personalities completely were transformed for fiction. If they really know, if they really know it's not true, this doesn't make any sense. Some have mentioned that when you look at conspiracy theories, real conspiracy theories, there tend to be three things that motivate any conspiracy theory. Sex, power, or greed. These men had none of those motives for this. Conspiracy theories that offer money or power, these men physically lost. Why? Because they believed Jesus Christ was the Son of God and He was raised from the dead and they were willing to die for it. Now John 20 gives us this. What a wonderful confession, my Lord and my God. Verse 30, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written, including of his resurrection, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And it almost feels like that's a great spot to stop in. You know, doesn't it kind of feel like that in verses 30 and 31? But then we have a whole chapter of John 21, and it's really important. And we thank God we have John 21. But why do we have it? I think in large part, Part of the reason we have it is because when we start talking about restoration to God, when shame and guilt and sin have been involved in betrayal and denial and all of that as his disciples have fled, including Peter who said, I, I won't do this and did do it. He did it. Which we'll come back to in a moment. But real restoration involves intellectual component but also emotional component. 
Now you get all the intellectual evidence you could possibly need for restoration of Jesus' disciples in John chapter 20, don't you? I mean, even Thomas is saying, my Lord and my God. But John 21, if you've ever disappointed yourself, if we've ever fallen short of what we knew was right, but we gave in to fear and sinned and wondered, can God really use me again? Can I be profitable in the kingdom anymore? I mean, I've sinned and I've brought shame on myself and on those who love me and on God's people and the Lord Himself. And we probably all have had those moments. John 21 is for you and it's for me. So with that in the background, John 21, as we think about this, we're going to really focus on verses 1 through 11. 1 through 11. Now this is very intriguing to me and there may be you know, a multiplicity of possible explanations. I realize that. But it is interesting after Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and they're all seeing that Jesus is the Son of God, how John 21 comes into play. You know, some may say, well, maybe they just thought there was nothing to do at the time, but Jesus is going to send them on a mission. You know, some have said maybe they just thought it was time to go back home and do some work and, and all of that, but I think there's more to this. John chapter 21 indicates, even though they have been given all this intellectual proof that Jesus is the Son of God, that they still are lacking in some areas of fully embracing the restoration of God's grace and the mission that's in front of them. And that actually makes sense to me. So in John 21 and verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, now brace yourself, they, Thomas just said, my Lord and my God. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and then the other disciples said, hey, we'll come with you. And they went out, they got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. And we'll come back to the event that happens because I think it's very significant. But doesn't it strike you a little uniquely? That after what's happened in John 20, they're saying, hey, we're going to go fishing. What were they doing when Jesus called them? Before, you know, before Jesus called them or as Jesus called them as disciples, they were fishing. There's some sense in which it's almost like we'll just go back to the way things were before. So if Jesus is going to restore them, the proof's already been given that he is the Son of God. Thomas and the other disciples have confessed him. Peter and the disciples are saying, we're going to go back to life like it was before. Why would they want to do that? There may be a couple of explanations. The Bible doesn't explicitly say. Maybe Peter still feels very ashamed. From reading the rest of John 21, I think that's probably a very sensible conclusion. Maybe they think the Lord's going to have to use somebody else. Maybe there's some economic resource issues. Maybe they're disillusioned about the nature of the kingdom. Perhaps they're just overwhelmed with sorrow. 
But when they ask the question, or when, when he says, I'm going to go fishing, and the other disciples said, we're going to go with you, that does seem pretty interesting. But there's something else that happens here. Look at John chapter 21. And so they, they do that. They, they're, going to, they're going to go fishing. But there is a historical narrative that's important to understand. Jesus is doing something with this. He's, I believe, orchestrating this as God's son. So John 21, they go out to go fishing. Now some that don't really have a high view of Scripture will try to say, well, you know, this has just been kind of cut and pasted out of Luke 5 and just stuck here. Not at all. There is as similar as the events, and we're going to look at Luke 5 in a minute when they were called, and this is, there are some differences. We won't go into all those, but there are some differences between those two, okay? So these are two separate events that very much resemble one another for a reason. And that is, they have to have a sense of the renewal of their purpose. We, if we're going to be restored to Christ, have to have our purpose renewed. If they don't realize what their purpose is, this isn't going to work. And it seems to me statements have been made that indicate they may not have a clear perception at all of their purpose. Even though Jesus has been trying to help them to see that. And so we have, you might say, this historical narrative. So if Jesus is reconstructing their original calling here, something very similar to what they experienced when, he, when they were called, what is he saying? I think what he basically is saying is, listen, it's time to renew your purpose. There is still work to do. It's time to accept God's grace and mercy and get back to work. The kingdom of God drives us beyond our doubts to embrace faith in the Lord Jesus. Look at John 21, and then we're going to come back to Luke chapter 5. And so in John chapter 21, it says, When the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Notice the net wasn't broken. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish with you that you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, let's, let's think through this for just a minute. Why does this happen? They're going to go fishing. They go fishing. Jesus shows back up. Go back to Luke chapter 5. Let's come back to Luke chapter 5. This is their initial call. Very similar event while it's a distinct event. Have you ever been maybe driving down the road and you hear a song 
And you haven't heard that song in a long time. And maybe you were a teenager last time you heard that song. And all at once, because of association with that song, your memory kicks in. It's not just that song. You remember people that you were around that you haven't been around in a long time. About the time that you first were listening to that song. It's interesting how memory can do that. You know, uh, you might have read this too, but I, I've, I've read that one of the strongest triggers for your memory is the sense of smell that you have. Maybe it was a particular kind of food your mom fixed when you were young and you smell that. Or maybe your grandmother down there in the south in Arkansas. My grandmother, I'm sure that's probably why I'm diabetic now. My grandmother used to make the sweetest tea. And every once in a while somebody will give me really sweet tea and I'll drink it. And it actually will make you think of another time. It's interesting what's happening here. This event, I think, is most probably meant to remind the disciples of their original call to discipleship. In other words, when you've, you've failed the way, the way Peter had failed, and you fall the way Peter had fallen, when he didn't think that was going to happen, and he wasn't where he thought he was, but he was where Jesus knew he was. Christ seems to me to be taking them back to that original call. You know, as gospel preachers, as elders, as Bible class teachers, all of us as disciples, fathers and mothers and husbands and wives, every single Christian, perhaps the reason we're struggling is we've forgotten that initial call. You remember when you obeyed the gospel? I bet you remember where you were, no matter how long ago it was, who it was that baptized you into Christ. And you remember right after you were converted to Jesus, the zeal that you had, the, the enthusiasm you had, the joy and the peace and the refreshment of your soul. But the Lord doesn't want that to fade away. He wants it to increase. He says, I give you life in more abundantly, more abundant life. And so he's taking them back, I think, to, to trigger in their mind Luke 5. Read Luke 5 with me. He comes and tells them what to do so they can, verse 4, put out into the deep water and let down your nets. They'd been fishing all this time. And Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Humility. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Now what's interesting, if you read John 21, it seems like it's the same folks we're talking about. Verse 10, And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. Now stay with me on this. Do not fear. 
if they thought we'll just go back to life like it was before and we'll just catch fish. What happens in John 21 should trigger their minds as to their original purpose of being disciples. They're not just going to be doing that kind of work anymore. They're catching the souls of men. There's work for them to do. This isn't time to give up. They've been forgiven. They're being restored. This isn't the time to give up. So we have humility. We have purpose. Look at verse 11. When they, and this is what they have to remember, when they brought their boats to land, what did they do? After that event, did they say, well, okay, that was pretty interesting. Let's go, let's go do something else. No, if you read that verse, that simple statement, they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. They left everything and followed Him. That's the kind of purpose that needs to be renewed to really experience restoration. Now you can, and I can. But that takes the commitment to God's grace and God's mercy. So Jesus seems to be rebuilding Peter by retracing his journey with his Savior and he implores us to stand with the disciples in the boat and to watch for the figure on the shore and to see him. He can get you through your disappointment, your struggle, your difficulty, your shame, all of that. By his grace and by his mercy. So, he has to renew that purpose. There's something else that needs to happen. And that is the restoration of relationship. And this is something that was real easy for me just to read over. Let's come back to John chapter uh, 21. And there's several important things that are implied by this. But remember when they, you'll notice there in verse 9, there's a charcoal fire and, and fish are placed on it. And they said to him, bring some of the fish which you have now caught and and Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land. And in verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them, and the fish likewise. And it says this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let me quickly go back to that point about the resurrection. You know, somebody says, Well, maybe they just, you know, had an emotional experience. He didn't just appear one time. He appeared three times. And usually we make the point, I've made the point, and I think it's a worthwhile point. When we, we were talking about the fact that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, that if we don't have a bodily resurrection, because there are some groups that try to say, well, it wasn't really a bodily resurrection. You know, our uh, Jehovah's Witnesses friends will try to say it's some kind of phantom spirit resurrection. Listen to me. If we don't have a bodily resurrection, we don't have faith. If we don't have a bodily resurrection of Jesus as is taught in the Scripture, we have no evidentiary basis for being Christians in the first place, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus' body came from the tomb. His soul, according to Acts 2, was reunited with that body. And that's the same Jesus that reigns at the right hand of God in His glorified body. Now, having said that, it's fair to say, listen, he ate with the disciples. And that would be true. I mean, how do you say this isn't the actual bodily resurrection? He ate with the disciples. 
But there's another thing I want you to see. How many meals do you think they had, had, had shared together when they saw him and talked with him and listened to him and conversed with him and observed what he had done? How many times had they eaten together? Men. If you're Peter and you're wondering, is I, I, I know he's the Son of God, but is he, is he really going to use me? Does he need to move on to somebody else? Jesus, I think, is restoring relationship. You remember in Galatians chapter 2, when Paul withstood Peter to the face. Why? Look what Peter did. So he's eating with those Gentile believers until the Judaizers come down from Jerusalem and they give him a hard look. And then all at once, he's pulling away from them. The implications of that. We're devastating to the gospel of grace. And so Paul was stood him to the face and Peter seems to have taken it quite well because later on, he calls him our, our brother Paul. So Jesus is trying to restore this relationship and you have to think Peter had to have had some pretty haunting memories. Now, I'm not a professional counselor, but I have seen the healing of memories and the finding of forgiveness. And people embrace that as deep, unhealed wounds were exposed. But let's talk about Peter for a minute. John chapter 13 or so. Peter, in Peter's mind, he cannot foresee an event that would cause him to leave the Lord. He could see where somebody else could leave the Lord, but not him. I think he's completely sincere when he says, Lord, I won't deny you. But Jesus says that Satan has requested permission. Listen to this language. To sift you as wheat. And before the rooster crows, you will deny me. But I pray that when you are converted, you may strengthen your brethren. That's where he's going in John 21. So you have to make a choice. At that point, you follow Judas to eternal destruction because you give up or you repent and you embrace God's grace and you're restored and you're useful in His kingdom. Those are the paths. But he had loudly and emphatically declared that he would die for the Lord and he would never deny Him and then he denies Him. You remember the context in the gospel accounts, John 18 mentions some things that are important. My wife, Rachel, is about five foot two and a half. <laughs> I told her the other day, she always says, somebody says, how tall are you? She says, I'm five foot two and a half. I said, honey, if you're 5'2 and a half don't matter. She said, when you're 5'2, everything matters. So she's 5'2 and a half. 
I guess I could go around and say, well, I'm six foot seven and three quarters of an inch. I mean, I'm almost six eight. But she has a look. I'm sure Sean has witnessed this look before, usually probably glancing toward me. But my son Connor and I know what that look is. Every good mom and wife has that look. And she doesn't have to say anything. She peers right into your soul. (laughs) But I thought often about Peter and Jesus and after the conversations they had. And the fact that Jesus really didn't have to say anything. You remember the event. And the text just says Jesus looked at. Think about the most shameful moments in your life. And we've all had them. What if Jesus was right there and he looked at you deeply? Well, there's a sense in which he does. Peter had gone through that. But Jesus is saying, I, I want you to come back, Peter. I want you to understand we're in relationship. I'm not turning my back on you. I'm blessing you with my grace and, and my mercy. And so think about it. He's renewed his purpose, his memory of what his present purpose is. And then he's renewed this relationship. But there's one more thing that we're probably more familiar and this is where we're going to end. And that is He wants them to remember what their purpose is. We need to remember our purpose. He wants us to understand that He will have relationship with us again and forgive us and have fellowship and communion. But then there's that third thing. They have to move on to reclaim their mission, their work. Grace means God has forgiven me, but He's also equipping me to serve Him at the highest level possible by the Gospel message. Peter is going to courageously preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Peter is going to go to the household of Cornelius and preach the gospel to those first Gentiles. Peter is going to be a man of of good influence in the kingdom of God. He and Paul are going to work in tremendous ways for the good of the kingdom. But in this moment, he could not have imagined it. Well, how's this going to happen? Verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my land. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Let's talk about this. Peter has to face that night of betrayal before he can move forward. Going back to fishing would not bring him to spiritual healing. He has to step forward in confession of Christ. 
Now, I've made the same argument, so I'm not being hypercritical here. A lot of the times when you get into this text, we'll start talking about, well, what, you know, what Greek term does he use? And it's true that there is some differential until the very last round between the word that Jesus is using and the word that Peter is using. So it's kind of like, do you agape me? Which we understand, that's a sacrificial love. And he's like, well, I have strong affection for you. Do you agape me? But then at the end, Jesus comes down in a sense. And that, and I'm not saying that's not a worthwhile point. I will say those words, you have to look at the context. Because both of the words that are used here are used between the Father and the Son in the book of John. Okay, but let's just put that on the shelf. And let's ask a real basic question. Why three times? Why three questions? Well, it doesn't take you very long to figure this out. Listen, Jesus knows whether Peter loves him. He's not just trying to elicit some information from Peter. The person he's concerned about is not, it's not Jesus going, I wonder. No. He's concerned about Peter. You know, if I had told the Lord that I will never deny you, and then he told me what was going to happen, and then I turned around and I did it. And then he comes back to me after all of this and says, hey, listen, do you love me? Wouldn't you be a little hesitant? I would be hesitant. I would think, oh, no. Last time I did this, But what I think again is happening is Jesus is giving Peter an opportunity to replace three denials with three confessions. This was for Peter. And one more thing about this is we learn something about love. We learn something about love. Love is proactive. Love has action. Look there in, in that verse, verse 15, when he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What does he say? He says, tend my lambs. Take action for my people. Get back in the fight, Peter. You have a mission. And then in verse 16, similarly, he says, well, if that's the case, shepherd my sheep. And then in verse 17, he asks him a third time. And he grieved Peter. He said, Lord, you know. And he again says, tend my sheep. Listen, once you've been forgiven and cleansed, God will use you. And he'll use you in this kingdom. This same Peter, as we end, come to 1 Peter chapter 1, knew what it was like to come through that fire and to be faithful by embracing God's forgiveness after disappointment. 1 Peter 1, that St. Peter says this, verse 16, And this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while if necessary you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as though, and though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Come back to John 21. I want you to, we're going to come full circle. 
Jesus says, you're going to learn to agape me. He tells them how he's going to die. Look at verse 19. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Listen, and when he had spoken this, what did he say to him? What did he say? Follow me. Well, stay with me. That completes our story. Remember where we began, Luke chapter 5? He called them to do what? Follow me. That was the initial call. Now after all of this, Jesus comes back to the saying, follow me. And we can't get out of here without me reminding you this morning, orientation, disorientation, new orientation of faith. Peter had that initial understanding. Peter went through great difficulty. But when he came out on the other side, after God cleansed him of all the shame, guilt, and sin, he had a whole new orientation. Didn't he? It may be this afternoon that right now as you're thinking about your life, you're going, you know what? I have felt very disoriented and I have sinned and I feel shame and I feel guilt. Why don't you, if you're a child of God but you've fallen away, why don't you come and we'll pray for you and these brethren will encourage you and you can be restored. Listen to the Lord. He says, follow me. And if you haven't become his disciple, will you become his disciple today and obey the gospel? Come us together, we stand and we sing.